Turn with me in your Bibles to the end of Acts chapter 12. Uh, our scripture reading this morning is going to be Acts 12, 25 through 13, 3. This is the account of Barnabas and Saul being sent off on their first missionary journey by the church in Antioch. But before we hear the reading and preaching of God's word, let's pray. Asking God for the grace to understand and to apply this portion of his word. Let's pray together. Living word of God, come now and bring forth your message for our lives in that which is about to be read and preached. May your word bless, heal, and restore us. For we are, as Isaiah said, a needy people. Your word is the only light unto our path and a lamp unto our feet. In this we rejoice, through Jesus our Lord. Amen. Acts chapter 12, verse 25 through 13, 3. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was also called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Kids, y'all come up and join me. Welcome, everybody. Nice crowd this morning. All right, yeah, have a seat. Um, have you guys ever been to a place called Ikea? Have you ever heard of that? It's, uh, it's a gigantic store. And they have basically everything that you would need to put inside of a home. Uh, from cooking pans, to ceiling lights, to, from couches, to kitchen countertops. They, they basically have everything. You can even buy meatballs. They, they really have everything. But, but here's, the, here's the thing. A lot of the stuff that they sell, you have to put it together yourself. Uh, for example, we, we bought a couple of bookshelves from Ikea. Uh, and, uh, you know, they're, they're pretty big bookshelves, but they came in a flat box that was pretty long, but it was only a few inches deep and a few inches wide. Uh, but fortunately, they give you instructions like, like these. Um, you know, there's, it's a pretty hefty book to, to go through. Uh, and just, just look at all the... Like, look at all the little bits and pieces that you need to work with. And, and there are just pages and pages and pages and pages and pages of this stuff. And I, 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 can, I think I can actually feel Philip behind me getting a little nervous. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, the, the folks at Ikea are smart. You know, they, you, it's easy to see how this could be a little bit overwhelming. That you know that this is supposed to become a bookshelf. You, you know what the finished product is supposed to be like, right? But 
But actually doing the work of putting it together is tricky. But look what they include at the, at the start of these instructions. They have these little pictures that, that are, are kind of saying, if this looks confusing to you, get together with a friend. Not just any friend. Get together with the kind of friend who keeps a pencil behind his ear when he works. <laughs> they, that person can guide you. And, and look, at this, look at this little picture down here at the very bottom. Look at that bottom picture. If you're still confused about what to do, just give us a call. We'll, we'll be glad to give you more guidance about how to build this thing. Now, for, for a person who knows what they're supposed to be doing, they're supposed to be building a bookshelf, but they aren't really sure how to do it, that's really good advice. Get together with somebody else and talk to the people who invented the bookshelf and then trust that it's going to come together. Well, guys, we, we actually see something kind of like that in the passage that we just read. In verse 2, the disciples of Jesus were fasting. That means they were not eating. They, they were trying to focus on worshiping the Lord. Because while they knew what they were supposed to be doing, they weren't really sure how to do it right then. They knew they were supposed to be making disciples of Jesus. They were supposed to be telling others how he died and rose again for us. But it wasn't exactly clear to them in that moment exactly where they were supposed to be going or who was supposed to be doing the work. And so they did what we are supposed to do. They got together with other wise Christians and then they talked to God about it. They talked to the Lord himself. They prayed, asking God what they were supposed to do next. They asked God for the wisdom that they needed to do the mission that he had given them. And what did God do? He gave it. He gave them, yeah, he gave them the wisdom that they needed. The Holy Spirit spoke through one of the people there and said, hey, set apart Saul and Barnabas, Barnabas and Saul, for the work that I've called them to do. And that's what they did. And a lot of the rest of the book of Acts is about what happened next. Well, for you and me today, guys, a lot of God's instructions to us are pretty clear. In His Word, He gives us clear instructions about what we're supposed to believe about Jesus and about how we're supposed to live as His people. But when we find ourselves in moments when we aren't really sure about exactly what that means today in this moment, what am I supposed to do? then we need to do what they did here. We need to come together and we need to pray for God to guide us. But think about it like this. After all, if Ikea is kind enough to help, then don't you think that our Heavenly Father, who already gave us Jesus, will also give us the guidance that we need when we need it? And because we can trust Him to, do, to, to give us all that we need to honor Him and to fulfill our mission of making disciples of Jesus, that's another reason why we call this good news. Do you believe it? All right. Thanks, guys. You can go to your seats. If you've not done so already, open your Bibles to uh, Acts chapter 12. As Sam said, we're looking at the very last verse of chapter 12 and then the first three verses of chapter 13. And this is uh, the story of Paul and Barnabas being uh, sent off by the church uh, in uh, Antioch to, uh, to begin what we think of as Paul's missionary uh, journeys. We, we see there 
uh, in the final verse of chapter 12 that, that Barnabas and Saul had just returned from Jerusalem. The, 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 the service that Luke mentions is the service of, of taking the funds that had been raised by the church in Antioch to uh, Jerusalem. You'll, you'll remember that there was a, a prophet in, uh, in Antioch at the time uh, who had foretold a, a coming famine. And when the church in Antioch heard of that coming uh, famine, they decided that they should raise funds for the relief of those who would suffer in Judea. They did that, and then they sent those funds by the hands of Barnabas and Saul to the elders of the church in Jerusalem. But when Saul, Saul and Barnabas return, they are then commissioned to begin this missionary work. And it's the, the story of that commissioning that we have here uh, in these uh, verses. And as we look at these verses, you'll, you'll notice that the outline in the, uh, the bulletin has five points. And if you know me, you know that's not possible. So um, let's just say we're not going to look at all five of those this morning. I just wanted to give you some idea of where we're going. Well, we're aiming to look at the first three of those points this morning and then take up the fourth and the fifth next Sunday. So let's, let's begin there with just the, the first point. The, the first thing that I want us to see in this narrative is that it is the church in Antioch that sends Barnabas and Saul. In verse 1, we're, we're told that there were in the church at Antioch prophets and uh, teachers. We're then given the names of, of five men. We don't know if these were the only prophets and teachers, but these are the ones that, that Luke mentions. Barnabas is named first, and then Saul is named last. And in the middle, we have these other uh, three names. Simeon, who was called Niger, a, a Latin word meaning uh, black or, or dark. Uh, Lucius of Cyrene and uh, Manaean, uh, who was, um, I think your, your translation actually had it a little different than mine, even though we're both using this ESV. Um, the, the, the newer versions of the ESV have lifelong friend. Uh, uh, the older versions have a, a member of, of Herod's court. And that's because the word is, is a little difficult to translate, but it's, but it's someone whose life was intertwined with Herod the Tetrarch. And, and this is not the Herod who had just killed uh, James and had arrested Peter and who had then died upon his throne. This is, this is actually uh, another Herod, the Herod who was involved with Jesus' trial. And so here we, we have someone who has uh, known Herod. He's, he's in the church in uh, Antioch, and he's one of the leaders of that church. Now we're not told uh, which of these men were prophets and, and which were, were teachers, and sometimes people will uh, sort of go on these uh, wild goose chases trying to, to figure out which is which, trying to find the clues, and I think that's sort of a fool's errand. I, uh, we're not supposed to know exactly who were the prophets and who were the, the teachers. My best guess is that all these men were prophets and teachers. They were prophets who taught in the church. But whether this is correct or not, the, the point seems to be that the church in Antioch was an established church with its own leadership. Remember, the, the church in Antioch began when, when some of those who were scattered by the persecution of Stephen took the gospel to Antioch and began uh, preaching uh, there. But you also remember that, that when the church in Jerusalem heard about what was going on in Antioch, they, they sent Barnabas there, and, and he began to establish the church. And not only did he begin to establish the church, but he went and got Paul to help him. And they spent over a year there uh, teaching and, and making disciples. And now, uh, uh, sometime later, we are uh, glimpsing this church, and we are seeing that it is an established church with its own leadership. 
You remember that Agabus, the, the prophet who foretold the, uh, the, the famine, that, that Agabus was not a prophet from the church in Antioch, but rather he was a, a prophet from the church in Jerusalem who had come to Antioch to help get it established. But now, now there are prophets and teachers in the church at Antioch. And this is significant. It's significant for us to see uh, that, that it is the church that is commissioning Paul and Barnabas because it shows us that what is being described here is the beginning of the first missionary journey carried out by commissioned representatives of a particular church. Previously in the book of Acts, we have seen people going and, and as they go, preaching the word sharing the, the good news of, of Jesus Christ with, with those in, uh, with whom they come into contact. But up to this point, the people who went were, were individuals scattered by persecution. Here, for the first time, we have people deliberately sent by a particular church inspired by the Spirit. When the, when the Spirit wants to prompt the, the sending out of Paul and Barnabas, he uses the church to do it. He uses a, a local congregation. And that the church is, for the uh, first time, taking up this sort of missionary work is significant in its own right, but it's also significant that it's the church in Antioch that is doing it. So let's, let's consider both of those points just, just briefly. First, that it is the church that sends Barnabas and Saul shows us something important. It shows us that the Spirit intends to use the church to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. It is the church as the church uh, that is commissioned to make disciples of all nations, even to the end of the earth. Uh, that work is given to the church. It is well and good for individuals to, to preach the gospel to their neighbors. It is, it is well and good for them to share the good news of, of Jesus Christ wherever they, they go, whatever their reason for traveling, whether they're, they're scattered by persecution or whether they're just on a business trip. It is, it is right and good that, that Christians should, should give a reason for the hope that is theirs as they go. But we must understand that the great commission, as we, as we call it, that, the commission given by Jesus to the apostles was given to the apostles as the foundation of the church. That, that's who the apostles are. They are the foundation of the church with Christ being the cornerstone. And therefore, that commission is given to the church. It is the church as the church that has been commissioned to make disciples of all nations. And that's why we see here the Spirit not just sending Paul and Barnabas out immediately, but rather sending them out through the commissioning of a local church. And it's significant that the church that he uses is the church in Antioch. That, that has significance also. It's because what we need to see is that it's not only the church in Jerusalem. It's not only the first church that has the responsibility for, for making disciples. But rather, it is every church Every church that is established is established as a missionary church. This commission passes on. You, you might even call it a pyramid scheme, although it has some pretty negative connotations in our, in our day and age. But, but, but when a new church is planted, that new church is brought into the work. That new church inherits the task. That new church now has its own responsibility to be making disciples to the ends of the earth. Every church is commissioned in the Great Commission to take the gospel to the ends of the earth and to make disciples of all nations. Now, now, let me remind you of something that I have said before. 
it is right and good for the majority of a particular church's resources to be devoted to making disciples in its particular context. Right? You, you've heard me say this before, but it, but it needs to, to be heard again. It's right and good for a particular church to use most of its resources discipling its own people in its own place. For example, most of our budget here at Trinity is devoted to making disciples here in Cleveland. And even more focused than that, most of our resources are devoted to making disciples of the people in Cleveland who are somehow connected to this church. And that is right and that is good. It is a, a function of our spatial and, and temporal limits. We are, we are finite creatures bound by time and space. We cannot be everywhere. We cannot do everything. And so therefore it's right and good that we, we focus on the place and the time that God has put us to, to do those good works that he has given us opportunity to do. That is, that is right and good. But even though most of our resources are devoted to making disciples here and now, it is also right and good for us to have an eye on the horizon and to devote some portion of our resources given uh, to the work of taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. We are to, to use some of that which has been entrusted to us to, to take the gospel beyond our time and place to the ends of the earth, to, to make disciples out there. Because as we see here, the work of taking the gospel to the ends of the earth is a work that belongs to the church as the church and to every particular congregation of the church. And so let's think just for a moment about how we do that here at Trinity. As I, as I said, the, the majority of our resources are devoted to making disciples here in this place in this, at this time. But there are at least three ways that this congregation is supporting ministry beyond our time and place and taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. First, and, and probably most obviously, we, we support a few missions. You heard Scott pray today for the, the school in Uganda, the Lutheran school in Uganda. That's one of the, the, the endeavors that we support. We support East-West Ministries, uh, where Shelley Burns works as a missionary agency. We, we support NextGen um, uh, ministries as well, which is uh, seeking to um, uh, train pastors who will uh, uh, pastor churches not only uh, in the United States but, are, but around the world. We, we seek to support um, uh, gospel ministry by supporting individual missionaries. And that is, I think, important. But, but we also need to understand that Trinity supports ministry beyond our bounds when we give to our denomination and when we give to our presbytery. And, and those are not always immediately seen. That's not always obvious to everyone. It just seems sort of like dues that you have to pay. But I want you to understand that when, when you look at the budget, we'll be looking at the budget again in, in uh, January. You, you'll see the church's budget and that you'll see a big chunk of money that's going to our denomination. And you'll see a big chunk of money that's going to our, our presbytery. And I want you to understand that that is giving to missions. That is giving to taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. First, when, uh, when we support taking the um, gospel, when we give to um, uh, the PCA, we are giving to agencies like MTW and MA and RUF. There's always a lot of uh, uh, letters in uh, Presbyterian circles. But, but what do those stand for? Well, MTW is Mission to the World. That is, the, that is the, uh, the, the sending agency of our denomination, of the, of the PCA. 
It is, a group, it is an agency that, that currently supports 700 missionaries in 102 countries. So when we give to MTW, we are, we are helping to support 700 missionaries in 102 countries around the world. Missionaries who are committed to establishing faithful, disciple-making churches around the world. And the same is true when we give to M&A. M&A is Mission to North America. So if, if Mission to the World is our sending agency, Mission to North America is the agency that, that supports missions here in the United States, and they are primarily responsible for church planting. And again, when we give to our denomination, we are giving to M&A, we are, we are supporting church planting around the country, especially in places uh, where um, uh, church planting uh, is not uh, always easy to do. The same is true with RUF. RUF is Reformed University Fellowship. It is the campus ministry of the PCA. And it is committed to putting gospel-preaching, discipling pastors on the campuses of our nation's universities. And when we support the denomination, we are supporting RUF, which is supporting gospel ministry on campuses around uh, the country. I think we're uh, at uh, something like 150 campuses uh, right now where there is an RUF campus minister uh, on uh, on the, the campus. And so when we give to the various agencies of the PCA, uh, we are supporting missions beyond our place here in Cleveland. And this is true not just of those three, but of other agencies as well. I could have even named the AC committee, the administrative committee. Who thinks of supporting the administrative committee as supporting missions? But it is. When you support the administrative committee, you are supporting those who do the legwork that allow these other ministries to actually do their job. Administration matters. And so when we support our denomination, we are supporting missions. We are supporting gospel ministry, and that needs to be understood. And the same thing could be said about supporting our, our presbytery. Our presbytery, for those of you who don't know, a, a presbytery is the sort of the, the group of all of the PCA churches in a particular location. Our presbytery is called Tennessee Valley Presbytery. It stretches from, from Dalton down in Georgia up to Sevierville, uh, just past Knoxville up in Tennessee. That's, that's our presbytery. And those churches, there's about 30 churches currently in that region, uh, maybe, maybe more, maybe 35 actually. We keep planting new churches, so it's hard to keep up. Uh, but that's actually the point, all right? Uh, Tennessee Valley is, is a group that is committed to planting churches. We're actually about halfway through an endeavor to plant uh, 20 churches in 10 years. Uh, we are the church, the new church up in Athens that is being planted by Curtis. That, that is one of those churches, but we have planted churches in Knoxville and in Udawal and uh, in, in all kinds of places. We are, we are planting new churches uh, all the time, seeking to plant about two churches a year uh, in, within our bounds. And when we give to the Presbytery, we are supporting that work. We're also supporting the four RUF campus ministers who work within our region. Uh, we have uh, one who works with international students at UTK. We have another uh, at UTK. Then we also have other campus ministers as well uh, within our bounds. And I, and I say all that. I go into all of that detail because I think it's actually important for us to understand that when we support individual missionaries, obviously, it's, it's obvious we're, they're supporting missions. But when we give to our denomination and when we give to our presbytery, we do that because it is stewarding the, the resources that have been placed at our disposal to support the work of the gospel beyond our bounds, to support taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. And, and, and we hope to do more and more of that in the years to come. We, we hope that a, a larger percentage of our budget uh, supports such work uh, every year as we become 
able to, to give more. But, but we need to understand that that is what we are doing. We, it is right and good that, that we uh, give to those things because those things are, uh, are uh, supporting the mission that is our mission as a particular congregation of Christ's church. As we, as we look at this text again, as we see the Holy Spirit using a particular church to send out Paul and Barnabas, we are reminded that this is the work of the church. Making disciples to the ends of the earth is the work of the church. Each local church does that primarily in its own time and place. But each local church also has the opportunity to store some portion of its gifts uh, to taking the gospel beyond its time and place, even to the ends of the earth. So that's the first thing that we see here in this, this text, that, that this work is the work of the church. But, but that brings us to our second point, because I want you to notice what uh, the church is doing uh, when the Spirit speaks. We, we read there in verse 2, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Now, there's some debate as who the they is here. Is this the, the leaders who were just mentioned in verse 1, or is this the, the whole uh, church? There are, there are reasons to, to go both ways, and I don't think that we can be certain, but, but whether it is the leaders alone or the church as a whole that is worshiping and fasting, it is clear that they are worshiping and fasting. That's what we are told. Now, in my experience, fasting is not something that most evangelicals are, are overly familiar with. If anything, they, they probably think of fasting somewhat negatively as a, as a work of self-righteousness that, that maybe grace-centered Christians would be better off uh, to avoid. But fasting is not a work of self-righteousness. It can be that. It can be abused in that way. Uh, and we, we see Jesus warn the Pharisees about, about fasting to be seen by men, but but remember that when Jesus gave that warning, he assumed that his disciples would be fasting. He said, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. So, so Jesus actually assumed that his disciples would fast. Fasting is not necessarily a work of self-righteousness. But, but what is it? What, what is fasting for? Why do people refrain from eating for a season? Well, interestingly, the, the scriptures actually never give us a, an explicit answer to that question. They don't give us a, a manual for, for fasting the way that, that we might like. But as we read the scriptures and as we, as we see people fasting in various contexts, it seems that, that fasting is, is connected with a special time of seeking the Lord's face. We, we, we refrain from eating. We, we, we refrain from eating for a season so that we can, with with uh, a, a, a focused clarity, seek the Lord's face. A person renounces the, the ordinary rhythms of life because they know in this moment they have an extraordinary need uh, to, to hear from God. Now, we always need God's guidance, of course. But we also know that there are those moments uh, uh, in, in life where we especially need to seek the Lord's Sometimes this is associated with repentance. We, we have been made aware of our sin in, in some fresh way. And, and with, with, um, with prayer and fasting, we come before God seeking his mercy and his 
His grace. Other times it's, it's associated with a need for guidance. We have some decision that we need to make and, and we want to hear from the Lord. We want the Lord's wisdom to know how we should uh, proceed. It's, it's not a work of self-righteousness at all, but rather it's a, it's a work of humble dependence upon the, the Lord of mercy. Fasting is an expression of, of sincere earnestness to, to, to know God's wisdom, to, to know how he would have us to go. And it's demonstrated by that, by that uh, the fact that we are keenly aware that we need his voice more than we need food. That's exactly what's going on here. And I, I actually think that most of us, me at least, would do well to fast more often than we do. I, I have little experience with fasting in my life. I've, I've only ever done it rarely, but that is almost certainly to my own detriment. We we must not make fasting a show or fast to be seen by men, as Jesus says. But it is good that followers of Jesus who live by, not by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, it is good that we would fast more often than we do. And here it seems that the fasting here is, seems clearly to be associated with, with that need for guidance. That's what the church is, is doing. They, they, they seem, Paul and Barnabas have returned from their trip to Jerusalem, and, and in a sense, they seem to be asking, what's next? What, what do we do now? How would you have us to proceed? They, they know that their, their ministry is the ministry of making disciples. The, the generalities are, are clear, and yet still they are asking, what, what specifically would you have us to do? You see, the, the mission of the church never changes, but the, but the particulars of how we engage in that mission uh, do. And every congregation of Christ's church needs to be asking, how would you have us as, as a particular church to fulfill the mission uh, that you have given us? How would you have us to be making disciples uh, with the resources that you have placed at our disposal? It seems to be what is going on here. The, the church is asking, what, the, uh, what would you have us to do Lord, how would the Lord have us to, to make disciples at this time and, and, and in this place? And it's right that, that every congregation should ask that question, and that they should ask that question in the context of worship and fasting. Worship, acknowledging that God alone is God, and that we are his humble servants, that we are at his disposal. And fasting, knowing that we need to have his wisdom that we seek to, to lean on him rather than our own understanding as we seek to do the work that he has given us to do. As I said, that's, that seems to be uh, what is going on here. And in the, in the coming months, I, I want us as a, as a church to, to engage in something like this. I want us to, to be engaged in times of, of worship and fasting as we seek to ask God, what's, what's next for Trinity? You know, we, we, we had a building program started right before COVID, and we kind of put that on hold. We're now in two services, which I know some of you really love, you know, and, and, and we, we have to ask ourselves, okay, God, how would, what would you have us do here and now in this place? Should we be, uh, should we again take up the, the object of building? Should we be building a worship center or should we be building a, a Sunday school wing or should we be building both or, or maybe we shouldn't be building at all. Maybe there's some other work that you would have us to be uh, doing, but I think it would be right and good for us as a congregation with worship and fasting to come before God and ask what's next. 
What is it that you would have us to do? How would you, how would you have us to use the resources that you have placed at our disposal? And you'll be hearing me talk about this more in the coming uh, weeks and, and, and months as, as we seek the Lord's face to know what is it that you would have us to do as a, a congregation of your church, a church that's been in, uh, in, uh, commissioned to make disciples both here in Cleveland and to the ends of the earth. But of course, such an endeavor raises questions, does it not? <laughs> It raises the question of, can we really expect an answer? Can we really expect God today to answer such a request? It's a, it's a fair question. Here, if you look back at verse 2, we, we see that, of course, the Holy Spirit does answer. As they are worshiping and fasting, the Holy Spirit says to them very clearly, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have Called them. Now, we aren't told exactly how the Holy Spirit does this, but it seems likely, given the fact that we've just been introduced to the prophets in the congregation, uh, it seems likely uh, that, that God speaks to the church through one of the prophets mentioned in verse 1. For, for that's what prophets are. Prophets are the mouthpiece of God. They speak for God. And so, therefore, it makes sense that God would speak to his church at Antioch through one of the prophets whom he had given to that church. But if God here speaks to the church at Antioch through a prophet, and if we don't have prophets in our church today, does that mean that, that we have no hope of hearing from God? Does it, does it mean that the request for, for guidance is futile? I don't think so. Listen, God gave apostles and prophets to the first century church in order to deliver the faith once for all to the saints, in order to, to, to lay the foundation upon which the church would be built, as, as Paul says in his letter to the Ephesians. Now, I do not believe that there are apostles and, and prophets in the church today in the same way that there were prophets and, and apostles in the church in the first century, because their role was foundational. They were laying the foundation. And once you lay the foundation, you don't keep laying it forever, but rather you build upon it. And so because prophets and, and, and prophets were, were foundational gifts, they are not active in the church today as they were in the first century. We may think that it would be nice to have prophets to tell us exactly what to do, uh, but, but the truth is that we do not, we do not need them. We, we have the words of the prophets here in our uh, scriptures. This is the written word of the apostles and the prophets. This is the foundation upon which the church is built. And while we do not have prophets and apostles, we still have the same spirit who inspired the prophets and the apostles. And prophets and apostles are not the only gifts mentioned in the New Testament. Prophets and apostles were foundational gifts, but there were other gifts, such as words of knowledge and words of, of wisdom. And we have trouble defining those, and I think we would be wasting our time trying to define precisely all the gifts mentioned in the New Testament. But what we do know is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, that, that the same spirit is behind all the gifts. The same spirit that, that, that spoke the very word of God through the prophets is the same spirit now who can give wisdom and knowledge to his people. And what is wisdom but the ability to take the words of the, of the prophets and to apply them to our particular situation and our particular time and place? And so we need to understand that while we do not have prophets and a prophet, uh, apostles and prophets in the same way that they did in the first century, we have the same spirit 
The Spirit is still active. The Spirit is still at work. And He can still lead and guide His people. He can, he can give us wisdom to know how uh, to, to love our neighbor well, how to, to share the gospel, what works to, to undertake. You know, for example, an elder in the church might, might say in a session meeting that, that he thinks that, that the, the church needs to, that uh, he, he feels that the Spirit is prompting him to say that the church needs to uh, study this or, or that subject or, or to study this or that uh, book. Or a member of the church might, might say, hey, listen, the, the, the Spirit has laid this need on my, my heart and I think our deacons need to be made aware of it. These, these are not prophetic words in the sense that they, they carry the authority of thus saith the Lord. But nevertheless, they are the, 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 the prompting, the wisdom, the guidance of the Spirit to His church. And we can ask for that guidance, and we can be confident that the Spirit will take it. You see, we have the written word, as I said. We have our unshakable foundation, but we need wisdom and discernment to apply it. And we can trust that the Holy Spirit, who inspired the apostles and the prophets, can give us that same wisdom that we need to know how to apply their words in our time and place. If we, if we didn't think that was possible, why pray in the first place? Of course we think the Holy Spirit can continue to lead and, and guide his church. And so, so what do we see as we, as we weave all these pieces together? We see that the church has a very particular mission, a mission of making disciples, and that that mission is primarily fulfilled in a particular location. The church in Antioch primarily makes disciples in Antioch. Trinity primarily makes disciples here in Cleveland. But that every particular congregation has the, uh, a part in the overarching mission of taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so that we can give some of our resources to that mission. But that we need to know particularly how we ought to do that. And that we have the freedom to ask the Lord to lead us and to guide us. We can, with worship and, and fasting, come into his presence, seek his wisdom, and expect him to answer. Expect him to lead us so that we can know how we can be fulfilling the, uh, the, the, the work that God has given us to do, both here and to the ends of the earth. And because we have a God who not only has called us into his service, but who has promised to lead us and to shepherd us as we seek to serve him and empower us to, to do the works that he has prepared for us to do because we serve that God who doesn't need us but gives us work to do anyway because that is the God we serve. That's one reason we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let's believe it together. Father God, we thank you for your mercy and your grace to us in Christ. We thank you that you have called us into your service. And we thank you, Father, that you will lead us as we undertake that service, Father. May we be people who are sensitive to your leading and who are willing to lay down our lives to follow your son, Jesus Christ. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.